0: Just wanted to share for a couple of minutes uh, something encouraging uh, about one of the fellows that I visit in in, in one of the prisons. Uh, his name is Derek uh, Gurkey. Uh, he's in prison for 11 years for sell, selling uh, heroin. And uh, a few months ago, he he told me during one of our visits, Ted, I I have an opportunity to, uh, get a degree in biblical studies. Derek was at a prison called Fox Lake. It was a medium prison, which means that twice a day you have recreation time. You can go outside, walk around, go to the gym and so on. And he said, but this, uh, this degree is at a prison called Wapan, which is a maximum prison and, uh, they have recreation occasionally, not every day, and basically from Friday afternoon until Monday, you're locked in your cell. You don't get out, uh, for nothing unless you have a visit. And he, he said, you know, Ted, I'm, I'm trying to decide what I should do. I'd like to get this degree, but to go to a maximum prison where many of the fellows there are in for 20, 30, 40 years and some for life, they really have no incentive to behave well. It's a completely different class of prisoner that's in a maximum prison. And we talked about it a little bit and, you know, I said, Derek, you know, pray about it. If the Lord wants you to go there, He can open the door for you. Uh, a few weeks ago He told me, Ted, I've been accepted to go to Wapan. I've been sharing, with, sharing this with some of the fellows in my area here at Fox Lake, and, and they tell, they all tell me, uh, without exception, if you do this, Derek, you are stupid, you know, to, to put yourself in a medium where you can move around, to go to a maximum where you're locked in your cell, you know, you can touch the wall on both sides with your hands and maybe... 10 or 12 feet long the other way, from Friday until Monday, you're, you're stupid if you do that. Well, you know, Derek decided to go ahead and go to Waupon. He got there last week. I got an email from him the next day. He said, Ted, this place is rough. Please pray for me and please visit me soon. So, you know, I, I, I have a lot of respect for that uh, man. He's in, he was in for 11 years for selling heroin. He's decided to pursue the degree in uh, biblical studies. I hope he is able to uh, stick it out. So as you have opportunity, pray for, pray for Derek. He, he's 32 years old. Uh, today we're going to be continuing in our study of the book of Galatians. We've been looking in some detail at the truth of the Gospel, at all that is involved with our salvation. And we've seen in Galatians that salvation is through faith alone in Jesus Christ crucified. It is not something that we earn through works of law. We saw in Galatians 2 verse 16, it says there, we know that a man is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 verse 11 says, the righteous man shall live by faith. And then last time we saw that God's purpose in the Gospel is to make believers sons of God or children of God. In Galatians 4, verse 4, we read, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, so that He might redeem those who were under law in order that we might receive adoption as sons. You know, a Son of God is no longer A slave, a son of God is no longer enslaved to sin. He, and he is also no longer a slave to the law. And what the Galatians had done, and what many people today do as well, is they turn, they're saved, and yet they turn back to the law as the rule for living their Christian life. They think, well, I've got to keep the law if I'm going to stay saved. And you know, false teachers had come to Galatia and were telling the Galatian Christians that a person needs more than faith alone in Jesus Christ if they're going to be saved and stay saved. These false teachers were also saying it was necessary to be circumcised and to obey the law if a person was going to hold on to their salvation. So how does Paul address this problem? We ended up last time in Galatians 4, verses 9 and 10, where Paul writes there, How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Paul is pleading with the Galatians, You are now sons of God through faith. So why are you turning back to living like slaves again? Why are you putting yourself under the law again? Why are you turning back to this law system that can only condemn you? Over our next three sessions, we're going to look at Paul's answer. Today in Galatians chapter four verses 12 to 31. we're going to look at Paul's teaching and Paul's logical reasoning that the believer must not rely on the law as the way to live his Christian life because every believer is a child of God. he's no longer a slave. and because the believer is a son of God, he is to live as a son. We read in chapter 4, verse 6, that every son of God has the Spirit of God's Son. Every believer has the Holy Spirit living inside of him. And the believer is now to live his life under the direction and the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So today, we're going to look in some detail... At Paul's argument as to why the believer is to live by the Holy Spirit and not by works of law. Then in our next session, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 5 verses 2 through 12 at Paul's teaching on Christian freedom or Christian liberty. You know, a common response that many people have when they learn about Christian freedom goes something like this. They'll say, I'm not under the law anymore. There's no more rules to keep me in check. Well then I can just indulge my flesh, indulge my sinful desires and then simply ask God to forgive me, you know, before I go to bed every night. We'll look in detail at why that response to Christian freedom is absolutely wrong. I'll give you one uh Quick verse on that, Galatians 5 verse 13 says, You were called to freedom, my brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for your flesh, but through love serve one another. And then in a, the third session from now, we'll look, we'll look at Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 through 25. If a believer is to live by the Holy Spirit, how do we do that? And we'll go through in detail at what is involved in walking and living by the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 4 verses 12 through 31. We'll be looking at the teaching as to why the believer is not to turn back to law as a reason for living his life. And I'm going to break it down like this. First, We're going to look at Paul's pastoral concern for the Galatians. Then secondly, we'll look at what the law actually says about itself. And then third, we'll look at Paul's conclusion. Christ has set the believer free for freedom. So we've got Paul's pastoral concern for the Galatians. Then what the law actually says about itself and then Third, Christ has set the believer free for freedom. So, first, Paul's pastoral concern for the Galatians. I'm going to say up front, this is a rather difficult passage to understand and to teach. It's definitely the most difficult section of the book of Galatians, and it's difficult for two reasons. First, Verses 21 through 31 are difficult because Paul is discussing Old Testament history about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac and some, you know, believers simply are not that familiar with those Old Testament characters. And then second, Paul uses a literary term called an allegory. Anybody know what an allegory is? Nobody? Right, right. It's An allegory is basically a story that is used to reveal a hidden meaning. So what Paul is going to do in his allegory here is he is going to use the Old Testament history of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar to teach... That a believer in Jesus Christ is to live out his life under the power of the Holy Spirit and not under the rule of law. But before Paul gets into teaching this allegory in verses 21 to 31, he makes a personal plea to the Galatians in verses 12 through 20. And here in these verses, Paul is going to remind the Galatians of his past interactions and dealings with them. He's going to remind them that he has always had their best intentions in view. And he's going to tell them that the false teachers did not have the Galatians' best intentions in view. The false teachers were promoting themselves and wanting the Galatians to have to depend on them. Paul was promoting Jesus Christ and telling the Galatians that his Desire was for Jesus Christ to be formed in them. Paul's interest in the Galatians was not to have them depend on him, but for them to reach full Christian maturity in Jesus Christ so that when Paul would leave Galatia, the Galatians would be able to stand on their own two feet. So in verses 12 through 20, Paul reminds the Galatians that he has had their best interest in view in the past and that he still has their best interest in view even though now he is going to teach them some very difficult things and some very unpopular things. Paul begins here in verse 12 by saying, I beg of you brethren, become as I am for I have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus Himself." So Paul begins his teaching here by reviewing his past history with the Galatians. They had had a very close, very loving relationship. And Paul says in verse 12, When he first came to Galatia, the Galatians had done him no wrong. In fact, Paul says, I was suffering a bodily illness when I came to you, and you did not despise or loathe me. But you received me as an angel of God. You received me as Jesus Christ himself. So on Paul's first visit to Galatia, the Galatians had warmly welcomed him. They had received him as Jesus himself. And this kind of welcome for an apostle was was as Jesus had taught In Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, where Jesus told his apostles, He who receives you receives me. So an apostle was supposed to be received as Jesus Christ, and the Galatians had done that. They had received Paul properly on his first visit. But now, in verse 15, Paul says, So where then is that sense of blessing you had? I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. The Bible doesn't tell us here what Paul's bodily illness was, but from this verse, you know, we can think that it might have had something to do with his eyesight, that he had some sort of eye trouble. And the Galatians had been pleased, and even proud to receive Paul on his first visit. But now in the first part of verse 15, we've seen that the situation has changed. What has become of the satisfaction you felt when I came to visit? Well, verse 16, Paul says, have I become your enemy because I have told you the truth? So the Galatians have completely Turned on Paul. Once they had received him as Jesus Christ himself, now they regarded him basically as their enemy. Why? Well, Paul had simply been telling the Galatians the truth. He had scolded them for deserting the gospel of grace. They had fallen prey to the false teachers who were telling them that faith alone in Jesus Christ was not enough for salvation. And this is an important lesson for us. When we read the Word of God and we don't like what it says, and that will happen to each of us at some point when we read the Word of God, we're not going to like what it says. We cannot be selective in our obedience. We can't say, well, I'll accept this part of the Bible because I like and approve that kind of teaching, but I don't like this This teaching over here, so I'm going to disregard it. God's Word is all God's Word, whether I like it or not. For example, you know, I think most of us know about the Bible's teaching on sexuality. And the world's wisdom basically looks at what the Bible teaches about sexuality and says, How out of touch, how unrealistic can you get? Nobody would ever or could ever live like that. Guys in the prison tell me that all the time. They say, Ted, you know, they don't even get excited about, you know, or angry about what the Bible teaches. They just say, you know, people don't live like that anymore. They can't live like that. You know, Thomas Jefferson, I think I've shared this before, but it's a good example, so I'm going to say it again. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, actually took a razor blade and cut out the parts of the Bible that he didn't like, and he made up his own Bible, his own new book. And it was called the Jefferson Bible. There were actually copies of it printed. I went out to Amazon.com, and saw that it's called the Jefferson Bible, The Life and the Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. About a year or so ago, I was at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., and I saw a copy of it there. Basically, Jefferson's Bible keeps the teachings of the Lord Jesus, things like the Sermon on the Mount, but it eliminates Jesus' miracles, and things like His deity and His resurrection, and so on. And basically, when you do that, you nullify God's way of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus says there to the church at Philadelphia, you have a little power. And why did they have a little power? Because they had kept God's Word and not denied his name. This world's wisdom says to set aside those parts of God's word that seem out of date or that seem intolerant. You know, keep Jesus' teachings on loving your neighbor. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But when it comes to things like the deity of Christ or that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, well, that's bigoted. That's intolerant. Get rid of it. So may you and I hold fast, like the Philadelphians did, to all of the truth of the Word of God. In verses 17 through 20, Paul explains the motives of the false teachers. Verse 17, Paul writes there, They eagerly seek you, and not commendably, but they wish to shut you out, so that you will seek them the false teachers were using flattery to win over the Galatians they were fawning and fussing over them in 2nd Timothy chapter 4 verse 3 Paul writes to Timothy false teachers will come and tell people what they want to hear and by doing so they will turn people's ears away from the truth False teachers want control and influence over people. They want people to have to depend on them. They want a following. And they want the prestige and the power that goes along with that. They aren't interested in giving people the truth. And Paul here expresses his concern and his goal for the Galatians in verse 19. Paul writes there, "...my children..." with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, I could wish to be present with you now to change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Paul here calls the Galatians his children. He likens himself to being their mother. He has gone through pains and sufferings for them in order that Christ might be formed in them. Paul's goal was not to create a following of believers for himself. Rather, he was laboring in order that Christ might be formed in them. And Paul was willing to spend himself and be spent for them in order to bring that about. And we need to remember this as well. You know, some churches... Maybe even many churches today look for preachers who are funny, who are entertaining, or who are focused mainly on increasing church attendance and therefore money. The right criteria is, does a preacher preach Christ and the truth? Does he expound the whole word of God? Or does he just avoid talking about controversial things like sin and hell and so on? Does a preacher desire that Christ be formed in his hearers? Paul said to the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God or the whole purpose of God. You know, Paul preached about things like sin and repentance and the cross and the blood and so on. Let's go on to our second heading here. What does the law say about itself? What does the law say about itself? Paul begins his reasoning here in verse 21 with a question. Verse 21, Paul says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paul's argument here for a believer not to live by law is this. He says, if you want to live under the law, do you know what the law is actually saying and teaching? And we're going to see in verses 22-31 through that Paul will show the Galatians from the Scriptures that the law casts Out the law. The law casts out itself as a rule for living. Paul is saying, if you want to live by the law as a rule for your life, you don't understand the real message that the law is teaching. So Paul is going to expose the illogicality of the thinking of the Galatians. And Paul has a three-step argument here. The first step is in Verses 22 and 23. Verse 22, Paul says, It is written in the law that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. The son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. The son by the free woman was born through the promise. So the Old Testament Scripture tells us that Abraham had two sons. One was by the bondwoman Hagar, and her son's name was Ishmael. The second son of Abraham was by the free woman Sarah, and her son's name was Isaac. Verse 23 says, Ishmael, son of Hagar, was born according to the flesh. Basically meaning, Ishmael was conceived and born Via natural human relations between Abraham and Hagar. Then it says Isaac, the son of Sarah, was born through the promise. Isaac, you know, was born long after Sarah's childbearing years were past. So therefore, Isaiah was called, er, Isaac was called the son of God's promise. Ishmael was conceived according to nature. Isaac was conceived against nature. That's the first step in Paul's argument. Verses 24 through 27 are the second step in Paul's argument. Verse, verse uh, 24 says, "This is allegorically speaking. So here we have that word allegory. This is allegorically speaking. These women are two covenants or two promises. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. It is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Paul is saying here that this Old Testament story of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac is to be interpreted allegorically. And that means that this Old Testament story is a picture of a believer's position or a believer's relationship to Jesus Christ. Verse 24 said that these two women, Hagar and Sarah, represent two covenants or two promises. Hagar represents Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai was the mountain on which God gave the law to Moses. And therefore, Hagar and her children are in slavery. We mentioned last time, You know what does the law do? Well, the law shuts men up under their sins. The law was not given as a way to make men righteous. The law was given so that man would have absolute proof that he is an unrighteous person. That's the first part of the allegory. The second part of the allegory starts in in uh, verse twenty six, and we read we read twenty six and twenty seven. Uh, the Jerusalem above is free, she is our mother. Sarah is different than Hagar. Sarah is not a slave. Sarah is free, and her children are free as well. So believers in Jesus Christ are free. They receive salvation not through earning it by keeping the law. They receive salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And they are children of promise. And this is the point that Paul has been moving towards in his argument. The true son of Abraham is Isaac. You know, one of the biggest... uh, Uh, issues that Islam has with this story here of Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac is who was Abraham's firstborn son? It was Ishmael, not Isaac. And yet, God said that his blessing and his salvation would not come through the firstborn, but through Isaac, And to this day, you know, Islam will hold to the fact that Ishmael is the oldest son and therefore he is the one who should have the blessings and the promises that the older son is due. So here, the true son of Abraham is Isaac, the son of Sarah, the free woman. He was conceived against nature. He was the child of promise. And verse 28 says, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. You, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. And this is important. Every believer in Jesus Christ needs to remember who He is. He is like Isaac. He is a child of promise. Every believer belongs to Jesus Christ and is in Jesus Christ. And he is an heir according to the promise. In chapter 3, verse 29, we read, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed or Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now, in chapter 4, verse 29 we have a warning there it says but as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit so it is now also every child of promise every believer in Jesus Christ must expect persecution and opposition if you go back to Genesis chapter 21, verse 9, it says there, "...Ishmael laughed at and he mocked Isaac." Isaac was the object of Ishmael's scorn. And it remains true today as well. And similarly, believers in Jesus Christ must expect opposition and mockery. To put faith in Jesus Christ for salvation... Was foolishness to the Gentiles. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says. Why? Because Gentiles thought that saving oneself was virtuous and honorable. And the same attitude is, exists today. You know, if you save yourself, if you can turn your life around and pick yourself up out of the gutter and make something of your life, you know, that's to your credit. That's to your glory. There's something noble and virtuous about doing that. But to have to admit that you are a failure, to have to admit that you are unable to earn your own salvation, there's a certain degradingness about that because you have to admit that spiritually you're helpless, that you're unable to save yourself. And this is why God's Gospel of faith alone in Jesus Christ offends people. Because the Gospel tells me the truth about myself. It tells me the truth that God is right to judge me. And that God is right to hold me accountable for my sin. I can't say, you know, well, my hormones went crazy. I can't say, well, I have a bad habit. I can't do that. I have to simply admit it is my sin that has put me in the predicament that I am in. Let's look at our third heading. The conclusion of Paul. Christ has set the believer free from living by law. In verse 30, Paul says, what does the Scripture say? cast out the bondwoman and her son for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman so then brethren we are not children of a bondwoman but of the free woman so this is the conclusion of paul's allegory paul has described the old testament history of abraham and hagar and sarah and ishmael and isaac he's He's displayed it as a child of slavery versus a child of freedom. And Paul's conclusion in verse 30 is, the Scripture itself says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. In other words, stop using the law as a means of living life. So, in Paul's allegory, what it's saying is the law itself the Old Testament scripture itself says cast out the bondwoman don't use law as a means of gaining your salvation don't use law as the means of maintaining your salvation a son is justified by faith in Christ and not by law and this means that a son is to live by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how this works itself out in the believer's life, we're going to look at in the next couple of sessions. For now, it's sufficient to say that if a believer puts himself back under living according to the law, he is going to fail and he is going to become discouraged because he finds that he's unable to keep the law. I can't go a day without sinning. And I would venture to say that none of you are able to do that either. We can, And, and this can lead us to doubt that we're saved. How can I be saved if I still want to sin? You know, those kinds of thoughts Satan plants inside of a believer's head. Chapter 5 verse 1 says, It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The law. God intends for his salvation to be a salvation of freedom. And this is hugely important. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5 says, The law kills, or the letter kills, but the Holy Spirit gives life. God's salvation declares me legally righteous and God's salvation also gives me the Holy Spirit to live inside of me. To give me both the will and also the power to do what is pleasing to God. That is the greatness of the salvation of God. It deals both with the root and the fruit. Living by the Holy Spirit is Christian freedom, and God desires for every believer to live in freedom. This is not something just for a few, you know, a few high and holy believers. It is for every believer. So today we've seen Paul's argument that the law or the Old Testament Scripture, casts out itself as a means of living life. And next time, we're going to look in detail at what it is to live with Christian liberty, because I think, as we all know, Christian liberty is something that has been used and abused by many people. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your great salvation. We thank you that you saw us as we really are and have told us the truth about ourselves, how deeply steeped in sin we really are and how deeply in bondage to sin every single one of us is. And we've seen that the greatness of your salvation is able to, has come and has paid the penalty for our sins, and not only that, it has given us the Holy Spirit who can give us the power and the guidance and the direction so that we can have real, practical, daily victory over sin and its power. Lord, how we thank You for the greatness of Your salvation, and I pray for myself and for each person here. May we understand what Your salvation is and what it has done and what You intend for it to do in our everyday life. Give us understanding to read Your Word and to learn what it says and then to apply it in our lives. We thank You so much for Your salvation. Our Father, in the name of Jesus, Amen.